Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Anil Gupta, who is Professor of Philosophy, Professor of History, and Philosophy of Science at the University of Pittsburgh, and a Fellow of the Center for Philosophy of Science and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He is also Editor of Philosophy and Phenomenological Research. Welcome, Anil. Uh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to your podcast, Gil. Sure, yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with one of your uh, papers from 2018 entitled Outline of an, uh, of an Account of Experience. Um, and before we start, Daniel, I have to tell you that I have been spoiled by engineering, life sciences, and economics. And, uh, and so, so the, the topic of discussion for us today is I'm almost a blank uh, slate for that. <laughs> So, 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 um, you know, uh, you have to sort of direct me to to talk about this because I have uh, really no knowledge uh, of this area. Uh, but I'm fascinated by it, and I'm really looking forward to our discussion. So, in this paper, you say the account of experience sketched below is one to which I was led by a reflection of empirical thinking, and more specifically, on empirical reasoning and empirical dialectic. Sometimes we, when we reason, you say, for example, when we are proving an arithmetical claim, our reasoning is independent of the experiences we undergo uh, as we reason. The contents of our claims, as well as the legitimacy of our inferential moves, including the introduction of new terms through definitions, do not depend on our concurrent experiences. Uh, they do not depend on things we happen to be seeing, hearing, touching, or tasting, or smelling, as we reason. But you say at other times, this is not so. Our reasonings at these times do depend on experiences as we undergo, uh, as we undergo, as we reason. Now, these times, these other times you mention, Anno, um, are, are they few, uh, or are they you know, quite a, quite, a, quite a frequent times that we get into situations that we are reasoning uh, with, uh, with experience? Well, you know, uh, 
say when we are doing mathematics yeah um and uh we are establishing a mathematical result we are reasoning there yeah uh and the reasoning that we engage in there does not depend upon the you know what we are smelling or touching right we can right. reason with our senses you know closed um um or say you know um you have a theory uh, yeah. a newtonian theory and you're using that to figure out the trajectory of some object your reasoning so you're reasoning from newtonian principles and you're right. arriving at a conclusion that reasoning does not depend on the experiences you're having when you're reasoning right mm. so so there's there are two kinds of there are two kinds of reasonings one kind is where you begin with some principles and ideas say mathematical axioms or physical axioms and you reason from them you deduce from them various consequences that's one kind of reasoning right yeah that kind of reasoning doesn't depend on what you're experiencing when you are reasoning <laughs> you know you can reason with your eyes closed you can do that kind of reasoning with your eyes closed um but there's another kind of reasoning which is much harder i mean there's this first kind of reasoning you know from going from principles to conclusions that is very well understood thanks to the yeah. work of the logicians in the 19th and early 20th century so you know, frege gottlob frege bertrand russell um kurt gödel uh, alan turing these people really made very clear what you know how this reasoning proceeds and this reasoning is so clear that you can automate it <laughs> right. you can you can uh, delegate that to computers that's right now. they can calculate you, you can you, they can reason that kind of reasoning can be done by a computer because it's, it's so well understood it's so it's so precise um but this there's another kind of reasoning and this is the reasoning not from principles but to the principles so how do we reason to newtonian principles for example or a chemical principle that yeah. reasoning depends on experience you know there um um we see something and we make a perceptual judgment or we observe something right and we reason then somehow to those principles the, the, the so there's reasoning there's reasoning to the principles and there is reasoning from the principles the reasoning to the principles depends on experience and i actually when ordinary kind of reasoning also that we are under, uh, we, we we do depend on experiences so you know i i gave the example of you know i want to figure out how much paint is needed for to paint my living room that depends on my current exp my experiences i go and measure the room right um mm. uh, so there is there is reasoning two things two principles which depends on experiences but it's so yeah uh, so there are two two types so so if i understand this correctly i know so uh the experiences one has um the accumulated experiences from the past it, it sort of shapes 
your reasoning process, right? Uh, and so, so if that is true, then uh, how one reasons in the second variety, reasoning to the principles, um, that, that reasoning processes could be different for different people? Yes, uh, they could be different. Um, and, and, and that is actually a, a bit of a puzzle. I mean, uh, you, um, I mean, that reasoning, as you say, depends on what your past experiences have been or what your view has, what your view is, right? Uh, how, what, what, what perceptual judgments you make depends on how you take the world to be. It's, it doesn't seem to be independent of how you take the world to be. But if, right, but if your perceptual judgments depend on how you take the world to be, then how, do, how, how does your view of the world gain any authority? I mean, you could have, you could have a crazy view, right? You could have a conspiracy theory view. And you make your, your that influences your judgments. So, I mean, but that, that there's something wrong with that kind of reasoning. So, so there's a puzzle, you know. Yeah, the, um, our perceptual judgments depend on our views, on our past experiences, as you put it. But on the other hand, the reasonableness of our view depends on the perceptual judgments. This, this, right. So, I mean, um, so how do you how do how do you break out of this thing? So there, there's a there's a huge problem understanding empirical reasoning. Um, and, 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 and incidentally, one response to this problem has been to try to isolate special kinds of judgments which don't depend on your view or your past experiences, which just depend on your current experiences. So for example, you know, you might look at uh, uh, a, a green ball, right? And Instead of making yeah. the judgment that, that that's a green ball, you simply make the judgment, I am now having an experience of something green. Mm. Um, that judgment, it seems, is independent of what you take the world to be. Well, it, that's independent of your past experiences. So, so one, one, one approach to the whole problem has been, and it's, it's kind of a, it has a long history, to, to, yeah. uh, and this is the this is one way of thinking about reasoning and experience. That experience provides you with certain fundamental judgments and certain fundamental yeah. concepts, which don't depend on your antecedent view or on your so, past experiences. Yeah, and so 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 you mentioned reasonableness of reasoning. So. The reasonableness of, of one's reasoning is localized, right? Uh, it, it, it can only have value in, in that um, the, the person uh, who is reasoning in that frame, uh, everyone else uh, could not, um, I shouldn't say could not, but presumably may not have the same, um, same level of reasonableness to that to that reasoning, I would imagine, because they all have different frameworks, right? Right, but there is a I mean, there is a notion of rightness that can uh, still be recovered. Um, that is, I mean, 
you, you say with, with the second, with the first kind of reasoning that I mentioned, where you're reasoning from principles, right? Starting yeah. from different principles, you'll deduce different things. But nonetheless, there's a general notion of logically valid argument, which holds across principles. Doesn't matter what principles you're beginning with, right? Um, and deductive logic sort of lays down what those rules are of proper reasoning. Similarly, it would seem that with, with empirical reasoning, reasoning that depends on experience, um, there is something about rightness. <laughs> um, uh, but how to explain, explain the rightness, that's not easy, right? Um, right. Um, so for example, you know, we, we, we all take, you know, to have, a, to, to think that the, that the earth is round. That's the reasonable thing to think, um, given what we've experienced, right? Um, uh, the other view is crazy. That's, you know, that's flat earth view, right? But exactly what is it? How is it that the round earth view is the reasonable one and the flat earth view is the unreasonable one? Or why is it that the QAnon view is, is unreasonable and a kind of a common sense view is reasonable? <laughs> um, uh, that, that's not easy to say. That's not easy to say. Um, right. As I was uh, uh, saying, you know, this, this idea that experience provides you with some special judgments, that uh, that led to problems. You can't understand rationality in terms of that. You can't understand reasonableness in terms of that. And so in, in the paper that you yeah. mentioned, I make a proposal about how to think about these things. Yeah, I, I want to get your insight on something something um, related, but but not in your paper. So. Um, you know, I sometimes think about experiences, and I'm thinking about the business world now, uh, experiences as biases. And uh, one of my books from 2009 called Flexibility, I argue that uh, the way that companies are constructed, um, you know, sort of like a pyramidal fashion, the people who get promoted are those with uh, more experience. Uh, that structure is doomed to fail because experience, by definition, is a set of biases. And when the company is required to innovate, experience actually acts as a noise on innovation. Um, I don't know if you agree with that notion, or I just want to get your perspective on that. Well, I, I think we need to distinguish uh, two, yeah. two senses of experience. Um, yeah. There is one sense of experience where, which is, you know, what you've gone through, your history, right? One might have spent uh, a decade repairing sewing machines, right? And uh, so one is experienced in that. That's one sense of experience. The other sense of experience is, uh, is suppose you're looking at something, you're looking out of the window and you see a bird fly by, right? There's a visual experience you undergo then, right? That, that lasts for a short time, um, or you smell something, uh, or you touch something. They, they, these are sort of sensory experiences. Um, and uh, so, this, so the, 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 the question that I've been sort of thinking about is, how do we think of the role of those sensory experiences in cognition? And how is it that we reason you know, 
based on those experiences. Um, so, so uh, I mean, yeah, um, I, you, you, I think you're right that you know, experience in the in the first sense, where it's just what you've got your history, right? That can be a negative for a person, right? right? Um, uh, but I mean, the, the, it, it seems to me that you know our understanding of the world, um, how we take the world to be, the reasonableness of that depends on our sensory experiences in some way. But 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 uh, Anil, would you say so? Just that example, you're looking out of the window, you're seeing something, you're perceiving something, and you're understanding something. Uh, even if you attempt to wipe the slate clean of all historical noise, um, your brain is still, uh, you, the perception that you're, you're getting is, is really a function of the initial conditions given to the brain, and that those initial conditions are driven by history. Uh, that it? is right. Yes, I, that, that, that is right. But then, I mean, uh, question, how is it that any judgment that you make on the basis of that experience, mm -hmm. how does that have any objective validity? If it is shaped yeah, by right. your, your body, right, uh, your past experiences, how does any, any judgment have any particular authority? You know, if someone comes along and, you know, makes an entirely different judgment. You, you, there's a bird flying by and someone says, you know, okay. there's a couch flying by. Uh, what, how, so how do we conduct this empirical debate? That's the question. That's the question. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, some, one sort of historical yeah. uh, view has been that it can't be conducted. That, that, that there is no, hmm. uh, that, that, that we can't reason to these things. It just has to be faith. Um, uh, I don't think that's right. I think I think we can make sense of 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 empirical rationality, where given the experiences, there is only one there's there's only one way to take the world. Right? There's no option. It is not arbitrary. Right. Right. So 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 just just talk about that a little bit. So you have another paper, experience and its rational significance. And um, you say their goals and even the grounds of philosophical account of perception are contested. Fortunately, in the present debate, there's a fair bit of common ground among the participants. So, so, so your mm -hmm. position, if I understand, Anil, is that uh, experience uh, helps you sort of, there, there's a trans, trans, transitory value. I don't know what the right term is, but it has value and um, and and it it actually um, helps you uh, reason in a rational fashion. Is, is that right? Is that am I understanding yeah. it correctly? Uh, uh, if I may just say uh, that paper that you just mentioned, uh, that's uh, yeah. a debate that I had with um, uh, uh, three people who have very very different views of perception: John McDowell and Bill Brewer and Susanna Siegel. So we were debating our different ways of thinking about experience. And um, yeah. uh, I think it's fair to say that all three of them take this standard view, classical view, experience mm. in, the, in the sense that I distinguished, look, uh, touching, smelling, looking, right? 
that 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 experience makes certain judgments reasonable and and some certain judgments even knowledgeable that's john mcdowell's view i what i have suggested is that we can make better sense of empirical reasoning if we think of experience not as making judgments rational but as making transitions to judgments rational so i mean you might have a crazy view right you might have a crazy view you might uh, but some people thought that you know what happens in perception is that you can see only your own mind and certain mental things so so when you're looking out and when you think you see the bird you don't really see a bird you see something mental a kind of a patch of red which has a, which is mind dependent mm. um uh, suppose you have a view right that 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 all you see are these they were called sense data all you see are you know these mental entities men, mind dependent entities um like a, like a green sense data or a red sense data what i wanted to say was that experience doesn't make any judgment rational it doesn't even make the judgment that, that bird is flying rational or that there is a patch of color over there that rational what what experience does is make the transition rational that is you have your antecedent view how would you take the world to be it may be a crazy view right but given that view for example given my present view my visual experience uh entitles me to the judgment that there's a tv monitor before me or that i'm listening to gil right uh given the given that view a certain judgment is the transition is rational not that the judgment is rational but the transition is rational so i suggested that you know we think of the role of experience in cognition the re, the what what experience is making rational is not a judgment but a transition so doesn't matter that your view is crazy in the beginning right doesn't matter that view is crazy but what experience is doing is enriching that view is making you and it enables you to add some new judgments to it right um so that was the that, that's the proposal i've been arguing for i i think that that um you we make better sense of our thinking and our reasoning if we think of experience as making transitions rational not judgments and what experience does then is you can take a crazy view you can enrich it and then it will get into trouble and you'll correct your view of the world uh, so in a crude way you you begin with a flat earth view you make measurements and you'll get into trouble they will not fit and that leads you to transform your view of the world right so doesn't the doesn't the brain do that to some extent and also you know if you look at sort of kind of the neurological or neuroscientific basis of the brain you say when you see when you look out of the window you you get some information uh, maybe you know a few pixels of information and then the brain is making sense of it through a through a rationalization process uh it's using historical data it's using experience to basically say what that that information that jumbled set of information that i got through the eyes is, is probably a bird right so so isn't the brain doing that to some extent yeah but uh, we really don't know what the brain is doing but this is a hypothesis perhaps yeah. right uh, uh right but 
the, 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 the question that you know you and I need to answer is even we are debating, right? What we are debating, how is it, uh, what is the status of our perceptual judgments in that debate, for example, right? Um, so um, the, 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 what I, the, the proposal I'm making concerns not how brains do things, but rather how we should engage with one another as we debate about how, what the what the world is like, right? Um, so I mean, how to conduct empirical dialectic? We can debate, right? And this is what goes on in science. There's an empirical dialectic. What are the proper rules governing empirical dialectic? That's the question. Yeah. So so that that's interesting. So so what what you're saying again? Um, I, I'm trying to understand this. So what you're saying is that. Uh, let's accept the fact that uh, experience is not perfect. It is giving you a set of conditions, but you can use that, you can take new information and you can have a transition to a conclusion to, or a judgment. You can make that transition rational if you, uh, if you understand upfront that the, the data that you're using could yeah. be faulty. Yeah. And so it has a lot of implications, right? So even, you know, a lot of the societal ills that we see today, or uh, like you mentioned, you know, flat earth, round earth type, uh, type debates, um, we, we appear to sit um, in the corners of a room um, with, with conclusions uh, that that could improve from both sides, uh, if I understand you correctly, and that could improve from both sides if you consciously make that transition a very rational process. Yeah, and and, and you know there is a kind of a, a skepticism that's around, um, uh, partly gotten from uh, wrong ways of thinking about the role of experience in cognition, uh, which which says anything goes, yeah. you know, I can have my view and you can have your view. Um, and uh, this, this comes in even with, you know, with religion. Um, we, we have various different religious, religious views of the world and which are taken very seriously. Mm. And we are supposed to simply, you know, let it be. You can't decide about that. Um, uh, <laughs> but, you know, uh, that, that arises in part because of this, misconception about the role of experience in cognition that that uh, that everyone can have their own starting point uh, their own view and it can't be it's, it's impossible to settle that uh, but i don't think that's right that that i think um, that a proper account of experience will show us that um, that uh, uh, not all alternatives are, are, are equal <laughs> uh, it's not up to you know one person you know for you to choose your view of the world, there are there are there are great obligations on even if, on, on 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 having a view of the world, right? Um, so yeah, yeah. Okay. So 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 what I'm taking away, I know. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, so, you know, in education today, we spend a lot of time on scientific process. That is sort of the first. Uh, category of reasoning uh, that we talked about, there is a lot of confusion there. 
but when we go out to society, uh, the really valuable reasoning process uh, is a second variety. And, and there uh, we have some problems because everybody has different initial conditions, different history, different experiences. And the, the, the process of reaching a conclusion or a judgment uh, in general, um, let, let me make a statement, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, are you saying in general um, that process is not rational and you have the ability to make it rational or, or something different? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that, you know, what goes on in science, I mean, science is not like religion, that it's, you know, yeah. that one has simply faith in it. Um, um, science is based on reason and experience. Um, and there is no choice about that. Uh, it's not like, you know, my religion is science and your religion is Hinduism or whatever, right? Or Jainism. Um, um, yeah. And, and and there is kind of, and in science too, there is debate. Uh, and there have been a, um, pretty vicious debates uh, about how things are. Uh, but I, but what, what I feel is that, that, since since when one part of the scientific reasoning is well understood, going from principles to drawing conclusions, that's a kind of yeah. an engineering type thing. Right. <laughs> but the other part of right. the reasoning process, where we go from this confusing dialectic to principles somehow, that is not well mm. understood. Mm. Um, there, there is good reasoning. There, there is reasoning there. There is a right reasoning there. And, um, but the character of that reasoning is not well understood. And we logicians need to spend more effort trying to understand it. And I made some proposals about how to understand that. Um, yeah, so, uh, so it's, and then and, and this kind of, this confusion about this, this empirical kind of reasoning then leads to unfortunate attitudes in society where, you know, Say coming from the work of Kuhn and other people, they, you know, it's all up, it's up for all up for grabs. There's no there's no rationality there. One can have whatever one's views one wants, mm -hmm. right? Say in religion, one can believe whatever one wants, and one is not supposed to question. Um, I don't think that's right, right? I don't think that's right. But does education have a role? Absolutely, to play here? But, but I think we, we, the the, the uh, education has to be reformed. Uh, uh, yeah. Science, for example, uh, is not taught in the way it ought to be taught. Um, the, the way science is taught is just a bunch of principles that's, that, are, that are magically given to one and some techniques for working with those principles. Right. Very often those techniques don't make much sense to the student. Mm -hmm. um, but the, 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 the education has to be you know, on this kind of scientific debate, how scientific debate settles things process by which, you know, mm. the, 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 these principles are arrived at, you know, people have to be educated in that, right? But I think before we can do that, we logicians have to figure out <laughs> some hard questions. Yeah, that, that is, that's so interesting. So, uh, again, if I understand it correctly, I know, you know, from a scientific process perspective, we take principles, we make predictions, we measure it. Uh, but the more important problem, a more challenging problem, is to take uh, empirical data 
uh, or it may not be date, it might be noise even, or it might be a set of experiences. And then reduce that to a principle. That, that is that's a much more challenging problem. And, uh, and it looks like uh, education yeah, institutions exactly don't really focus on that. And so, so the question there would be, so that, again, I'm going back to from policy perspective, you know, so, so how would you, if, if you were to think about reforming how we educate students, what are the attributes that, that you would bring in to, to make it uh, better? I guess, um, I, once you know, the logicians have done their homework, I mean, there's, there's a debate about this thing, uh, the paper that you mentioned. There were, I mean, to, yeah. to make sense of empirical reasoning, you have to have a way of thinking about experience. This the kind of experience, the visual experience, actual experience and uh, and and then that's not settled there's a debate going on about that um uh so we need to sort of first sort out uh, the situation amongst ourselves first right but i think uh, it, it, there's it's not as it is not it's not entirely clear and agreed on right now uh, how to think about experience and how to think about reason this is not something that's you know the, uh, we have not reached a point where we can say, oh, yeah, you know, we agree on that. And on, de on deductive logic, there is agreement on a core part, and that's a very powerful yeah. part. And that part is so good that it's programmed into computers, right? Um, but we haven't reached there. Mm. We, are, we aren't there yet with empirical reasoning. But I guess in, on edu in education, what I would want to stress is this process of scientific debate, how we debate with one another. Mm. And how we come to an agreement. You know, in science, we come to an agreement on some very wild things, which are much, much wilder than, you know, <laughs> political disagreements. I mean, we have come to an agreement about, you know, nature of time, for example, right? And this kind of a crazy view that the earth is round. I mean, this goes against all, you know, perception. Um, uh, so if you can come to an agreement there through reasoning, surely, you know, we can come to agreement elsewhere. Uh, so I mean, I think I, I would want to. What I would want to stress, uh, in what I would want to increase the stress on, is not sort of using science. Yeah. I mean, people kind of they are teaching techniques on how to, you know, solve various little problems, but rather how to reason and how to debate um, with one another. Right. Uh, but that's a case where debate does settle matters and settles very hard matters. Um, uh, so, I, yeah, and I, and I settled the matters rightly, right? I mean, there's a sense of reasonableness. The conclusion is we might, we reach, might be actually false, and further, you know, experimentation and experience might reveal that. But at least the process is rational, right? So, so that's what I, I would want to stress. Right. Yeah, so, so, so it, it's interesting, Arnold, you know, um, as technology improves, what we're finding is that, as you say, that the scientific reasoning um, is, is programmatic. Uh, we can delegate most of science, technology, and engineering, um, you know, in, in some sense, uh, mature uh, science, engineering, and technology to computers. Um, 
it has a positive side to it, which is it should give mm-hmm. humans more time uh, to figure out more interesting, <laughs> interesting problems or think about more interesting problems, uh, which is going in the other direction, which is taking experiences and, and deducing rules from those experiences and making those rules to be universal in, in some sense, right? So... So, so that's a problem. It's still sort of out there. Uh, perhaps on the positive yeah. side, humans may have yeah. more time to think about it. <laughs> we'll take a quick break, Daniel. When we come back, we'll talk about your book, Conscious Experience, right. A Logical Inquiry. Uh, thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back. Uh, I know uh, we were talking about experiences and reasoning processes uh, in science, scientific process, uh, we take well-known principles, we make predictions, we make measurements. That, that process doesn't appear to have a lot of use uh, of experience. Uh, but as you say, the more interesting and more challenging problem is going in the other direction, which is taking one's experiences and then deducing rules from it or making judgments from it. Um, and it's an ongoing, uh, ongoing debate, as you say. They have obviously implications for education and public policy. I want to now talk about your book, uh, Conscious Experience, A Logical Inquiry. Uh, you say a ro- the, the role of experience in cognition is a central and ancient philosophical concern. How theorists ask, uh, can our uh, private experiences guide us to knowledge of a mind-independent reality? Um, so, so if I understand you correctly, um, I know um, you are saying maybe. <laughs> so what's the, what's the central premise of the book? Well, um, yeah, there, there is... Um one uh, purely logical idea that is motivating me. Um, And um, uh, this idea comes from the work I did on the concept of truth Mm. uh, um, with a number of um, collaborators, uh, including Newell Belknap and Sean Standifer. And and, and that is the, that is that, we can make sense of logically interdependent things. Uh, so, I mean, if you say in, in, um, in Euclidean geometry, you, you begin with certain principles and you deduce things. That's kind of straightforward. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's the kind of reasoning that we understand very well. Um, but there's another kind of a logical phenomena where things are interdependent. And the kind of thing that you are saying, you're mentioning, um, where where your past experiences 
and what I call view, uh, uh, shapes your judgments. So your judgments depend upon your experiences and views, and and your views depend upon those judgments. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So there is a there's a, there's interdependence there. Hmm. Um, uh, so um, one idea that underlies that book is trying to think of empirical cognition hmm. while taking this interdependence seriously, not not breaking the interdependence. The idea of kind of pure datum of experience that tries to break this interdependence hmm. or get a kind of a special judgment or special concepts that don't depend upon your antecedent views. Hmm. Right? And uh, so well, one thing I, I do in the, in the book is say, well, let's, you know, that, that, that idea gets into a, into a whole lot of problems. It doesn't work. Let's take interdependence, interdependence seriously. That is, perceptual judgments depend upon views and views depend upon perceptual judgments and try to make sense of empirical cognition within this framework. Uh, so that's one idea uh, that underlies that book. Uh, yeah, so, so on, on that and also if, um, if we take experiences and we make judgments and those judgments then um, then turn back into our experiences. That's circular. And what we see in the world out there today is that th that movement from experiences to judgment and back to experiences is self-reinforcing. And you're sort of in a in a vicious circle that you cannot break out of, right? It is is um, is that something uh, number one is is that what you what, what what you think or you think something different uh, uh, I, I don't think it is necessarily a vicious circle yeah. there is a circle but not all circles are vicious <laughs> yes some circles yeah. actually do very good work for us I mean I'm thinking about logical circles you know yes Tradi the, the tra traditional logic has ruled all logical circles as illegitimate improper. And one of the theses that I've argued for, together with other people, is that that's not right. That there are certain kinds of logical circles which are just fine, and they are useful, and they are good, right? Hmm. Uh, so there is this interdependence of views and judgments. You know, that's undeniable. And there is a kind of a circle there. But that circle is not necessarily vicious. It becomes vicious if, if one begins with certain kind of bad views, right? Uh, the, 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 our view of the world has to be such that it is open. It, has, it is open to experience. It's open to enrichment and transformation by experience. Uh, hmm. And if it is that, then even an erroneous view, right, will be yeah. or can be shaped by experience into a right view, into a correct view. That's possible. Right. So, okay. um, yeah. So uh, my thesis is that, yes, there is this interdependence. There is this circularity, but this circularity does, is just a fact of, the, of life. We, we can't get around it for one thing. Right. And it doesn't that it doesn't have to be vicious. Great. So if it is uh, if it is a closed circle, so to speak, uh, then you cannot break out of it. But if you're if you're able to 
let information in uh, at whatever point in that circle, then you can rationally transition to a better principle, right? Right. Uh, yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, by being open to alternative views too, right? Um, by having an empirical debate, uh, uh, I mean, the, the ideal would be something like this. Uh, say, say, say we all begin with very different views, right? Different paths, different, right? The ideal would be this, where we go out, explore the world, and as we enrich our views, right? After everything, and, and, and the judgment that we, we might make there themselves may be faulty because of our bad, poor views to begin with. But as we enrich our views and, and um, when they become incoherent, try to make them coherent, that we'll come to an agreement. That is, it could be, I mean, this is, the, this is, this is, the, this is, this is what I think is the picture of ideal rationality. We begin with arbitrary, even arbitrary or even crazy views about how the world is, but we are sensitive to experience and we make judgments and we are, our views are malleable and are changeable in light of experience. And through the course of experience, we come to an agreement, right? Uh, yeah. Come to this, the, the, uh, uh, an agreement about the broad layout of the world, right? How the world is. Uh, I think that's possible. And I think that is the kind of picture that we ought to have about what makes our views rational. It's kind of openness to, is empirical dialectic. It is openness to experience. It is having views that are transformable, which are not rigid. You know, mm -hmm. you can you can you can have a view, which no matter what the experience will just confirm itself. Uh, right. Uh, right. So, you know, but, but that's that 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 character of view by that very character makes that view a bad view, an irrational view, in my view. Mm -hmm. And so. So, so if you have a rational process, um, what you're arguing, and if I understand it, is that the initial conditions don't matter. You know, you may have a set of views um, that that may be incorrect, let's say. Yeah. Uh, but if you have an open system, it will reach um, a, a more uh, a more logical point over time. Now, you know, I would say also that if you think about that circle being open, I think what we have in society, generally speaking, is that an authority, uh, there's a gatekeeper who allows certain information to go into that circle. Now, that, that process is not very efficient. Um, I, I, would, I would think that an open circle with no gatekeeper or no filtering of information is probably has a higher chance of getting to optimum. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, I think uh, we have to be very careful about gatekeepers. Uh, we yeah. have to be very careful about censorship of information. That's one way that, you know, bad regimes and bad worldviews um, uh, survive. <laughs> um, right. So yes, there has to be as little gatekeeping as possible. Yeah. And uh, would you say, Anil, you know, again, going back to education, um, 
you know, I, I tend to argue that our education system uh, tends to be highly prescriptive. And um, when you have a highly prescriptive process, you, you basically that ends up curtailing uh, information uh, and, and really providing sort of uh, pre-designed chunks of information. And in a world where only innovation really matters, such a process is not going to be that useful from an education perspective. Yeah, that seems right to me. I think it's uh, much more important to uh, nurture people's creativity <laughs> um, um, and curiosity and openness uh, than yeah. uh, prescribe them to you know, learn certain techniques. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so practically speaking, I know you know, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of technology schools, uh, universities, uh, STEM education. It does not have, for example, philosophy uh, as a component of education. Um, you know, I went through a very prescriptive education system in India, and. You know, when you are 10 or 12 years old, you're basically uh, selecting your profession. And uh, from that point on, you are specializing in, in something very, very, uh, very deep and narrow. Um, and the U.S. arguably has much higher flexibility, but, uh, but it's in a spectrum. Uh, we have similar situations, right? So... So are we going toward, I know Scandinavian countries like Finland, for example, have moved away from sort of prescriptive education structure, physics one, physics two, physics three type structure into something much more designable. Um, do you think that is a, that is a more um, valuable process? I don't know. Uh, you know um, part of because I, I just haven't done research on this topic. Um, uh, I, I, I do think that um, some long, rigorous study of some subject matter uh, is, is good for one. Huh? Um, uh, uh, so, um, um, but, uh, I, uh, but the question you, you raise is, is a good one, and I don't have a, a settled view on it. Um, um, but, you know, but I... I but I would say the kind of compartmentalization that occurs, right? Where, uh, say, in India, you know, you would have people who would um, uh, study science, right? Um, hmm. And be very good at it. But at the same time, sort of believe in astrology. <laughs> you know, um, that, kind of, that, that kind of combination of... Uh, Kind of compartmentalization. That's not a. That's not a healthy thing. That that means that you've really not understood what's going on, right? Uh, you can't study astronomy, um, and 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 uh, come to this kind of view of the of you know of what the planets are and the stars, um, and at the same time be have faith in astrology. Right? Um, <laughs> uh, so so I I think this compart this. This, this, edu this education into how one reasons properly, right? Mm. That, 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 mm. I think, that I think is important. 
yeah, in some sense, one could argue, I know that that's the only thing that's important. So, you know, uh, the the content of education, the content that you get from education, uh, the half-life of that content is going to be declining over time. Um, you don't have to, you know, learn from books um, that are stagnant uh, because things are going to change. It's going to be much more dynamic and fast. So the only thing that is really usable, useful, is the process, not the content. I think that's right. The content, the process, the process is uh, very important. Um, yeah, and this process that you're talking about is, you know, my um, my understanding of this is is that, yeah, I mean, we, we talk about scientific process all the time. That's a deductive process that's well understood. Uh, but the, the real challenging thing um, for us to really figure out is going the other direction, right? So, so the, the question is, how do we do that? Um, and I think um, reasoning, um, maybe, you know, some foundational skills need to be there for that to happen, right? Which we don't take away from STEM education, looks like to me. Yeah. Just to make one thing plain, I, I see science as consisting of two kinds of reasoning. The yeah. reasoning from principles and reasoning to principles. And um, and our education stresses much more reasoning from principles, applying principles. And right. the reasoning to principles, that actually is hard. <laughs> and that's not right. well understood and that's under current debate, right? But that's what needs to be stressed. I mean, um, in, in a practical sense, one can, uh, one can gain skill in that kind of reasoning. And I think that skill needs to be improved. And can be improved, right? And and our understanding of that reasoning needs to be improved. So historically, I know um, if you look at you know uh, ancient cultures and modern world, um, do you think we have progressed backward in, in in that in that arena? I'm sorry, I didn't understand that, Gil. Could you? So, so you know, these two types of reasoning, yeah. right? The 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 reasoning, uh, reasoning two principles, as you yeah. say. Um, are we worse than maybe early civilizations? Do we have any any notion of how people used to be? Let's say five thousand years ago. Yeah, um, I think that's a um when we you know when we uh, say uh, when we talk about this reasoning um yeah the let's talk about walking <laughs> um we there's a skill of walking we can walk right and ancient man walked just as well as modern man does um right uh, but there's so there's something else sort of understanding walking how is it that we walk Right, um, that, mm -hmm. to understand walking—that's super hard, and I guess neither ancient man nor us understands it. Perhaps we understand it a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Right um, yeah. now, on, the, on this kind of uh, the reasoning, two principles that I was talking about, reasoning based on experience, 
ancient man was very skillful and had to be um, to survive, right? So there was the skill, they could do it and we, we do it, scientists do it, right? Um, and they can do it without understanding what they are doing, just like they can walk without understanding how they walk, right? Um, uh, and it's the task of the logician to figure out, right, how the reasoning works, just like it's the task of the biomechanist to figure out how we walk. Um, but we do walk and we, and we do reason rightly uh, in the empirical domain. Um, and ancient man was very good at it. And we are very good at it. And our scientists are very good at it. But ideas about how we reason, well, I mean, I hope we are better off now, but, you know, there's all kinds of strange ideas that have been put, I mean, Plato thought, Plato thought that, you know, that, that, uh, that's by senses, you can't learn anything about what reality is like. That there is a kind of, there's, there's a special power of reason. And he had a kind of a fantastic account of that power of reason. Um, uh, that, so, I mean, so, so there have been different kind of views about, you know, how to make sense of this reasoning. Uh, and how to make sense of experience. And some people have uh, kind of strange ideas about how to make sense of it. Um, um, I hope we are better. I mean, I hope the proposal I've made in that book, Conscious Experience, I hope it helps us understand a little bit uh, how this very difficult kind of reasoning works. Uh, and, you know, right. there's a, to understand that reasoning, uh, you have to understand experience how to think about experience. There has been a debate about that for the last 2,500 years, how to think about experience. <laughs> uh, in the book, I make a proposal about how we should think about it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, do, do you want to summarize very quickly what, how, how you were kind of understanding experience? What does it look like? Well, um, um, okay. The, but I guess there are two parts of the proposal, and uh, it's just like going to be a sketch. Yeah. The one part is what I just mentioned to you before, uh, the bit about that the what the rational contribution of experience is not to judgments. Experience doesn't make judgments rational; it makes transitions rational. I, I've I've I've, I've mm -hmm. called that, uh, that that idea hypothetical given. Uh, uh, so mm -hmm. this this terminology of given what experience gives us. So in, in my view, experience doesn't give us concepts. Experience doesn't give us judgments. And what, it, what it does give us is this rationality of transitions. Uh, and uh, I argue that that helps us understand empirical thinking. Uh, the other uh, idea that I uh, put forward is this. Um, um, but the, the, this may not make all complete sense because I, I, I can't. Well, there's a background against which I make this proposal. I, I suggest that we think yeah. about. There, there, there are all kinds of ideas about thinking about experiences, representations in the brain or in the mind or whatever, right? I suggest, I suggest, in yeah. contrast to these ideas, that we think of experience. Say, take take the experience. So you're looking at a bird, right? There's a bird out there. And you're looking at it, you're having a visual experience of the bird. I suggest that we think of experience as a presentation of reality to consciousness. Mm. So when you are experiencing mm. the world, 
a bit of reality, right, is presented to your consciousness. Oh. What that reality is, you don't know about in, in virtue of that experience. It is not as if, you know, the, the, this, this is where I'm opposing traditional ideas. On the traditional way of thinking about experience, a bit of reality is presented to consciousness and you come to experience provides you knowledge of that reality, right? What I'm suggesting is that reality is presented to you in experience, but experience doesn't inform you of that reality. The rea and that reality, right? The presentation of that reality, uh, there's another uh, dimension of it. And that is that that reality manifests appearances to your consciousness. Um, so the reality doesn't present in itself, right? The, as you were, you were saying, right? Well, how we experience the experience depends on a lot of things. It depends on the reality. It depends upon environment. It depends on what's going on in your brain. It's going on what's going on in your eyes, right? The whole combination yeah. of that, the, the, those uh, results in the, the presentation of reality, right? Uh, manifesting appearances. So a bird might be, suppose birds are real things, right? The bird is a real thing, which is presented to you in your visual experience, and that bird manifests in its appearance to your consciousness. So it's a, I, I call this account dual component presentationalism. There's a presentation of the world, and there's an appearance that that reality manifests. The experience by itself is not revealing to you what the reality is. That has to be figured out through reasoning, right? And you don't even know the appearances just because they're manifested to you in experience. The, the old idea was, ah, the, the subject first comes to know its appearances and then is able to infer from reality from those appearances. I'm suggesting, no, you don't even know appearances. That has, what, what reality is, has to be figured out through empirical reasoning. Um, so anyway, but that's, that's kind of a crude scratch of the account of experience I put forward. Uh, but it'll take a long talk to uh, explain how that works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, so again, you're going back to this idea of um, transition uh, can be rational. Right. Uh, the transition process can be rational. The appearance, right, is the appearance yeah. that renders the transition rational. Yeah, the it's virtual okay. appearance. Yeah. But there's no guarantee that the conclusions and the judgments are rational. Uh, the, the, the judgments may not be rational. If your antecedent view is not rational, your judgment may not be rational. Um, that, so that can happen, right? I want to close, Anil, with uh, another paper, um, Intersubstitutivity Principles of the Generalization Function of Truth. Um, you say we offer a defense of one as aspect of Paul Horvich's uh, response to the liar paradox, uh, more specifically of his move to preserve classical logic. So what is the liar paradox? Oh, this is uh, an ancient thing. Uh, it, uh... Uh, it, the, the concept of truth uh, generates a huge logical problem um, that uh, we've been thinking about, you know, uh, from ancient times. Uh, Jubilee days, um, 
a Megarian logician discovered this. Um, so, I mean, uh, the phenomenon is very simple, actually. Uh, uh, suppose I, suppose we, we, are, we are having a conversation and I say, everything that I've said in the past two minutes is false, right? And uh, uh, including this, you know, uh, the two minutes include this uh, statement. Uh, and suppose everything as a matter of fact that I've said uh, in that period is false, except perhaps for this one statement that I made, right? <laughs> and then, given yeah. that situation, you can reduce yeah. contradiction, you know, outright. Um, yeah. um, so the liar paradox essentially is that very basic principles uh, governing the concept of truth, logical principles governing the concept of truth, mm. lead to outright contradictions. Um, and uh, the problem with paradox is to understand how our concept of truth works, given this paradox. Uh, and they, they, but, but it was actually thinking about this paradox that I came to the conclusion that logical interdependence makes sense or can be made sense of. Um, um, yeah. And um, uh, this is the work that I uh, did uh, with Google Belknap. And uh, some of this work was independently done by Hans Hersberger. Um, um, it, it had been a view, uh, a kind of common view in logic, that um, we must think of the concept of truth as fragmented. That you know, there, there isn't just one concept of truth. Uh, so suppose I were to say, right? Suppose I were to say that no judgment is both true and untrue, right? It's a kind of logical law. Uh, mm. According to this this idea of fragmentation, that judgment that I made can't be subsumed under that very judgment. I can't conclude right, that, oh, that, that judgment can't be both true and untrue. Um, um, so that, that, that was a, 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 a common view. Um, uh, some important work was done by uh, Saul Kripke and Robert Martin and Peter Woodruff. Uh, uh, in uh, about in 1975, which showed that you do not have to think of the concept of truth as fragmented if if you abandon classical logic, uh, uh, if you abandon classical principles, and um, uh, I was able to show that uh, that uh, the, 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 there's a certain thing called semantically closed languages, which was defined by, by uh, Alfred Tarski. I was able to show that uh, yeah. you can have semantically closed languages that are classical. Um, so you can um, you do, you do not have to think of truth as fragmented um, in this way. Um, mm. um, and uh, uh, the um, the um, myself and Hans Hersberger and Noor Belknap, uh, we showed uh, we constructed a scheme for making sense of the concept of truth in in any setting, right? Um, without thinking of it as fragmented. Um, um, 
so so i'm i'm thinking i don't i don't know i don't know if there's a there's a parallel here you know in physics uh from newtonian mechanics to quantum mechanics uh when we look at quantum mechanics using classical mechanics it doesn't make a lot of sense uh mm. but if you don't do that <laughs> you know you get a set of different set of conclusions right is yeah, there any yeah there is a bit, there is a, we were thinking about I mean, I, the root the, 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 there was this old idea you know as i said to you that logical interdependence doesn't make sense and of course if you yeah. if you if you rule if, if you rule out logical interdependence then you can't make sense of the concept there's a sense of the concept of truth and what what my proposal was that what belknap and i showed was that you can make sense of logically interdependent systems of concepts you can even make sense of circular concepts and uh, and yeah. uh, that in fact that we argue that truth is a circular concept and given the function that it serves in our thinking it has to be a circular concept only a circular concept can serve that function um um uh now that that paper that you just mentioned um uh, hartree field had uh, raised an objection to us um um uh, saying that uh, a certain kind of intersubstitutivity principle was required for truth to serve its function and if you if a field were right then it would follow that you would have to abandon classical logic um and that paper uh, with sean standerfer shows that actually for truth to serve its function uh not the kind of strong intersubstitutivity principle that field was talking about is needed but something much weaker right something that can be accommodated within this theory of interdependent definitions that we have so that's what that paper was about okay okay excellent yeah this has been great anu thanks so much oh, for spending time with me for this conversation i greatly enjoyed it thanks Bye-bye. so much this is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics if you like to sponsor this podcast please reach out to info@scientificsense.com